History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different from what we've been doing previously. So what we were doing before was picking the podcasts that were being published on this day in history. But one of our Illuminati members, Thomas Shea, made a great suggestion and he said, why don't you have themed History of the World podcast magazine episodes? So I thought that was a great idea. And I've put it out there on the social media pages to give me some ideas about themes that could be good for History of the World podcast magazine episodes, where we could dip back in history and look at maybe three or four excerpts from previous episodes that are linked in some fashion. Now this week, and on the next History of the World podcast magazine episode, so it's a bit of a two-parter, we're going to be doing unlikely victories. So we're going to dip back into our catalogue of battle episodes and find those battles. Well, I've actually picked out seven battles. And we're going to be looking at the battles where victories were obtained against the odds. So our first one, we go back way back in history, um, around 2,500 years ago. And we'll be looking at when the Persians invaded Greece. The Persian Empire was a very powerful polity which had expanded from Iranian lands in the east all the way to the Anatolian landmass in the west. This expansion threatened Greek societies and interests in and around the Aegean Sea and the Greek polis, or city-states as we might like to call them, that regularly battled with one another. And they realised that they would need to stick together in order to stand any kind of chance against these Persian invasions. When the Persians invaded the Balkan Peninsula, they would push the Greeks south they would take control of the city of Athens and it looked like Greece was going to fall under Persian control. Let's go to Salamis in the year 480 BCE. The Battle of Salamis with the Achaemenid forces led by King Xerxes I, now at Athens, it would not be difficult for his brother Achaemenes to lead the fleet around the Attica Peninsula to meet up with his brother at Athens' seaport. Now the Achaemenids would likely be aware 
that the Allied Greeks had retreated to the Isthmus of Corinth because all you needed to do was put yourself in their shoes and ask what you would do in their position. So, if the Greeks were preparing for another tightly bunched battle of infantry and archery, then wouldn't it be a surprise if you were to load much of your infantry onto your naval fleet and bypass the Isthmus of Corinth completely? The Greeks did not know what to do and it would come as no surprise that the Athenians in exile and the Spartans both believed that they knew what was best. The Spartan naval commander was a man called Eurybiades, and Eurybiades believed that the Greek fleet should withdraw to the Peloponnese to defend the Spartan heartlands. However, the Athenian commander Themistocles felt otherwise. He believed that by heading off the Achaemenid fleet before they reached the Peloponnese that the Allied Greeks would have a better chance of success. At the mouth of the Athenian seaports, there was a large island called Salamis, and between this island and the mainland was a strait of water called the Strait of Salamis. So the Greeks eventually decided to try and engage the Persian fleet there. When Xerxes learned of all the Greek willingness to engage, he leapt at the chance, feeling that he had the Greeks on the back foot and saw an opportunity to strike the killer blow to their navy. It is said that Themistocles sent a messenger to the Achaemenids to give them false information in order to gain a tactical advantage. Whether this is true or not is debatable. It would be quite understandable for the Achaemenids to believe that momentum was in their favour and King Xerxes would even personally settle at a high vantage point to observe this great battle and the glory of Persian dominance over the Greeks. When the Achaemenid fleet approached the seaports of Athens at the Strait of Salamis, the Greek naval fleet retreated into a narrow strait of water. This would entice the Achaemenid naval fleet into the strait and this is exactly what Themistocles was banking on. As soon as the high numbers of Achaemenid warships entered the straits, the Allied Greeks struck back, attacking the Achaemenid boats in a surprise counter-attack. The Achaemenid ships realised that they would need to back up, but such was the high numbers of the Achaemenid fleet that a retreat was impossible, and as the Greeks advanced, the Achaemenids simply ended up getting in each other's ways, crashing into each other and accidentally attacking each other in the blind panic. The Greeks would ram the panicking Achaemenid fleet, boarding their boats and slaughtering their men. This was an absolute unforeseen disaster for the Achaemenids. They had been drawn in and trapped and now they couldn't escape from these treacherous narrow waterways. Ultimately, the Allied Greeks would capture and sink hundreds of the Achaemenid ships. Thousands of Achaemenid Persians were slaughtered or drowned in the torrid waters of the Strait of Salamis. Xerxes was absolutely horrified. This was now a done deal, 
and a crushing and unexpected defeat for him and his Achaemenid Persians. Xerxes had no option but to demand a retreat, undoing all of the hard work that he and his forces had done to get this far in the first place. Xerxes had had enough of Greece and decided that he wanted to return to Persia with the remnants of his forces. It would be the Achaemenid Persian commander Mardonius who would offer to stay in friendly Balkan territory with a small force to keep an eye on things. Mardonius had been a close ally of Xerxes' own father, Darius the Great, and had also been trusted to make preparations for Darius's first invasion of Greek lands some 12 years earlier, before Datis would take over and provoke the Battle of Marathon. So Mardonius would stay and Xerxes would go, and the allied Greeks had scored an unbelievable victory. If Marathon was great, then surely Salamis was even greater. Aftermath Although Themistocles had famously outwitted the Achaemenids against all the odds, he would still have to oversee the return of Athens to the Athenians, who would have to pick up the pieces of their destroyed city. This must have been an extremely poignant time for the Athenians who had built and evolved their city both physically, spiritually and politically for many generations and this was the outcome of their proud history. The effect that it would have on the Athenians was profound as it would be for those many Greek polis who had been similarly affected. The Greek Polis had matured very suddenly in the light of what happened at these Greco-Persian exchanges and now they believed that they were worthy of their place in the world and that they could consider themselves at the very least equal to the mighty Persians. The Athenians would have it in their minds that they would build Athens back up and make it bigger and better than ever. It would still take some time for the Greeks to run the Persians out of their lands completely. Although tensions remained for many decades afterwards, the Persians would never mount such an invasion of Greece ever again. Now, our next revisit will be to the times of the Roman Republic and the Romans under Julius Caesar. And they scored a great victory against Ptolemaic Egypt and now Caesar wanted to avenge a defeat scored by the Pontic king Mithridates VI against the Roman Republic 20 years earlier at Zella in Anatolia. The Pontic army, now led by Mithridates' son, Pharnaces II, was larger than Caesar's travelling army, so victory looked unlikely again. Prelude to the battle Having Egypt as an ally was always favourable due to Egypt's rich and often unchallenged culture which capitalised on the fertility of the Nile Valley. 
Caesar would be able to plan his next moves into the lands of Anatolia and the Middle East, where there were actually a number of issues that needed to be dealt with. Pharnakis had been enslaving and castrating Romans in Anatolia. Another class of people from Rome who had been operating in Anatolia were the equestrian tax farmers, whom we mentioned back in episode 31. And Pharnakis had been murdering those Roman equities operating in his locality. This kind of behaviour angered Caesar, who seemingly saw this as a blatant disrespect for Roman culture. Pharnakis did not seem to be too concerned about how Caesar felt, believing that he could still appease him. Pharnakis would send envoys to meet with Caesar and offer the hand of his daughter in marriage and royal gifts, but Caesar was not interested in such things. Caesar wanted to stamp out this extremely inhospitable new emergence of Pontus, believing that it was Roman territory. Caesar's biggest challenge was raising an army fit enough to fight Pharnakis, who was effectively on home soil. Firstly, he would exploit the Asiatic societies who had offered support to his deceased rival Pompey. One such society was Galatia, led by their king, Deiotarus. Deiotarus was allowed to continue as the king as long as he pledged to help the Romans. And so he did. However, it still seems like the Romans were outnumbered going into this battle. The Romans always liked to build fortifications where they could. They feverishly built them at Elysia when besieging the Gauls. So Caesar camped nearby to where Pharnakis' own father Mithridates VI defeated the Romans 20 years earlier and he fortified it. Pharnakis saw this as an opportunity to catch Caesar out due to him being preoccupied with consolidating his physical location. The Battle of Zella Pharnakis had lined up his army and was advancing on the Roman position. Caesar was very surprised. Caesar was definitely preparing for an engagement but did not expect Pharnakis to set the pace. Pharnakis used the scythed chariots that had also been favoured by his father. These scythed chariots would have a scythe blade protruding from its wheels. Looking across from the Pontic camp, these chariots would be required to drop into the valley between the two camps before heading uphill towards the Romans. Caesar was surprised by this tack, both due to timing and method. The Romans would have to get themselves organised quickly and prepared themselves to launch an assault with javelins and darts to try to hold up the chariots who were causing damage to the hastily organised Roman front line. This brought the Romans a bit of time to get organised before the arrival of the Pontic infantry and by the time of their arrival, the Romans were able to engage in battle. The battle was long and hard fought between the two armies. 
The Romans reportedly started getting the upper hand on their right hand side and this would cause a wave of weakness through the Pontic lines. Caesar would ensure that his legions would capitalise on having the upper hand in these exchanges and it wouldn't be long before Pharnaces realised that he was in a tight spot and needed to retreat. The Pontics hastily retreated back across the valley, many of which abandoned their weapons in order to escape as quickly as possible. The Romans pursued them across the valley, killing and capturing as many men as possible. The Romans reached the Pontic camp, and despite some very stout resistance from those men defending the fortifications there, the Romans destroyed it. Pharnakis, by this time, was gone. This was supposedly the battle that led to Caesar coining the phrase, I came, I saw, I conquered. It led to the collapse of the Pontic state with Pharnakis being killed by a Bosporus army acting as clients to the Romans and Caesar would have to return to Rome before planning a new expedition in Asia. But he was assassinated before he was able to do that. Our next battle, our final battle for this week's episode, takes us to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of Great Britain that had been falling to the powerful Danish Vikings who had been gradually coming to the island in greater and greater numbers for a number of decades. The last remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdom was Wessex, under its king Alfred. The great heathen army of the Vikings was being led by Guthrum, and it looked as though the Vikings would complete their conquest of the Anglo-Saxons, which takes us to Eddington in the year 878. Prelude to the battle. The Danish army waited for the accompaniment of a naval fleet before they tracked each other along the south coast of Great Britain, all the way along to the settlement of Wareham, an important coastal town of Wessex. The Danes took control of the town and despite Alfred's best attempts to lay them under siege, the Danes would survive the winter. Alfred was forced to negotiate terms and the Danes appeared to agree to terms but this seemed to be a ruse because the Danes simply ignored the peace terms and continued on to the city of Exeter, slaughtering the Wessex hostages that they were holding as part of the negotiations. The Danes were still chancing their luck by hopping from Wessex settlement to Wessex settlement. Alfred was in pursuit and a lot of the Danish fleet was lost in storms along the way. The city walls at Exeter provided a welcome defence for the Danes from the pursuing Wessex Saxons. This time the Danes had to agree to terms more favourable to Alfred, in order to be allowed to retreat back to Mercia. However, this would be when and where Guthrum would formulate a new plan for the conquest of Wessex. 
It was after Alfred had celebrated Christmas in Chippingham that Guthrum sneaked down to Gloucester and launched a surprise attack targeting Alfred himself. Alfred would not have expected this due to the fact that it was the winter and campaigning was uncommon in winter. Most of the Viking boats would be banked during the winter for their own protection. Alfred and his family fled for their lives and they could only flee on foot into the floodlands of the English county of Somerset. I read from one source that Somerset was named due to the suitability of the lands for summer grazing. If this is true, then it may also be a reflection of its unsuitability during the winter months, the months which Alfred was desperately attempting to flee during. According to the 11th or 12th century book called The Old English Life of St Neot, while Alfred was negotiating the marshes with a strong degree of anonymity to avoid capture, he stumbled across a swineherd's house and while sheltering inside and contemplating his position, did not notice that the swineherd's wife's buns were burning in the oven and she scolded Alfred, having no knowledge of him being the king. Most historians consider this story as an unreliable tale, unfortunately, especially as the book deliberately looks to glorify King Alfred. Alfred would wait both incognito and undetected until after Easter, fortifying the marshy Isle of Athelney and possibly stockpiling weapons. Now that the weather was improving, Alfred would be able to get the message out to the villages of Wessex to summon them to a secret meeting to decide what should be done to prevent Wessex falling to the Danes. Alfred knew that it would not be long before Guthrum would learn of this and decided to rally the West Saxons to join together as an army to do battle with the Danes and this would need to be done right away. Alfred moved his makeshift army back towards the village of Eddington and a portion of the Danish army would also move against the West Saxons in order to stop their progress. The Battle of Eddington Disappointingly, we have very little detail about the exact events at the Battle of Eddington itself. We know that it is likely to have happened in the first half of the month of May. We don't even really know if Guthrum was actually on the battlefield or not. Guthrum's Danes would have been on the battlefield with their axes, spears and swords, many of these weapons which would have been stolen from others. Alfred's West Saxons came with whatever they could lay their hands on. The Saxons had specialised weapons such as the ash, so called because it was made from the wood of an ash tree, and essentially it was a composite spear made from the durable ash tree wood with a metal blade. It may have been that not the entire Danish army was engaged with Alfred's West Saxons during this conflict, but the Wessexians fought hard and pushed the Danes into a retreat. The Danes decided to take refuge in the town of Chippenham, but it does appear that Guthrum was in Chippenham with his men, even though we cannot be sure if he led them on the battlefield on this particular occasion. 
In the aftermath of this battle, the Vikings were forced into making a truce with the Wessexians, which effectively split the former lands of the Anglo-Saxons into two, with the Vikings in the northeast and the Anglo-Saxons in the southwest. The Anglo-Saxons would expand in the coming decade and that would create the origins of the country of England. Now, on the next History of the World podcast magazine, we'll be continuing this uh, look into unlikely victories uh, by having a look at another four battles. Uh, But first, we should be publishing the first of our episodes on medieval Korea. Thanks ever so much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, which was the History of the World podcast magazine on unlikely victories. And um, we'll be revisiting some more unlikely victories uh, in two weeks from now. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. And if uh, you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, then please do visit our website. It's the history of the world podcast.com. You can go and click on the Patreon link. And when you do, you can sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast Illuminati, and you will qualify for gifts and rewards. If you'd like access to bonus material and you want to listen to the podcast ad free, then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And if you'd like to get in touch with me and uh, you'd like to talk to me about the podcast or anything related to it, if you'd like to let me know what you thought of this week's episode, the themed episode, the first time we've tried it, then please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Next week, we'll be looking at the history of the Korean Peninsula. It will be a two-parter, and next week will be part one. So we'll look forward to that. Until then, have a great week, and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.